Hey guys, this is Hunter Levine, and thank you for listening to the Captain's Collective Podcast, brought to you by Skinny Water Culture, Turtle Box Audio, All Hands Vodka, Costa Sunglasses, and Orvis Fly Fishing. In today's podcast, I find myself back in Georgia, but this time on the coast. Over the past few years, I've been learning more and more about this beautiful fishery that's so often overlooked. Today's episode was recorded at a live boat show and barbecue that featured the Fly Fishing Film Tour and was hosted by our friends at On The Fly Outfitters, who not only focus on inshore fishing, but also falconry, which we're going to be exploring in an upcoming episode this fall. In this conversation, Jared DeVinson and I are joined by former guest and world-renowned fly tire and guide Blaine Chocolate to learn more about these waters and the recent efforts to see more people join in the fight to protect their future. We also talk a bit about sight fishing for flounder and how organizations like the GSAA and the ASGA can work together to help folks on the ground make a bigger impact. We hope that you enjoy our time together. Thank you for listening. This is the Captain's Collective. I'll say it's anything you choose, I think it picks you, you know, it's genetic. Let everything else stop in the world and just be quiet. And then it's amazing where your mind goes at that point um, and where it doesn't go. And sometimes just that quiet space is, is what we need, and especially in this day and age. You have a fly rod in your hand. It's this tool that takes you to beautiful places. You meet hopefully wonderful people. And it's just this cherry on top of this outdoor adventure. When the fish is coming, that shot within a shot, that timer starts. No one else knew anything anyway, and you're just might, definitely making it up if you're going along. But so what Grandpa and Dad would tell me is like, all right, where's an old big trout laying out there? Where's his shaving cream on the water? Where's he been shaving this morning? So look for his shaving cream on the water, and that's where he's gonna be. All right. Well, hey, Jared, thanks for allowing Blaine and I to hang out here and take a little bit of up today just to record a podcast. We got a boat show. We got a barbecue cook off. We had what's it called? A salty dog. The salty dog, <laughs> the famous salty dog that's created by Chad DeBose up in Savannah. Yeah, man. Just yeah, some anyone good that's done the Savannah Fly <laughs> Invitational knows what a salty so dog is. We got a bar over by me called Salty Dog, so I have to rebrand that in my head a little bit. But man, what a great event. We're going to have the fly fishing film tour here and then Blaine's doing a special tie night and just a really cool day. It just so happens to be blowing really hard, so not a lot of desire to be on the water. So everybody gets to be here and talk and laugh and learn from each other. And I'm just grateful to get a moment to sit down with you guys and, and just chat a little bit about what's going on here in Georgia as I've, I've not fished Georgia as much as I'd like to in a couple areas and to hear about what you guys are hoping to see some changes made in the fishery and uh, just kind of dive in. But before that, can you just give a little bit of rundown about where we're at and what, what's going on with this event? Sure. No problem. First, thanks for coming down. I mean, you guys both drove a significant way to come join us here in support of Georgia Saltwater Anglers Association. Uh, we brought this event together through On The Fly Outfitters to, to, as a way to kind of raise awareness for, for the issues in our fishery. Uh, mainly, our past year and a half has been focused on redfish primarily. Um, so we put together this event wrapped around the um, International Fly Fishing Film Festival at our local historic theater here down in downtown Brunswick. We're a small port city. 
um, located in the Golden Isles of Georgia. That includes four barrier islands, uh, Little St. Simons, Sea Island, St. Simons Island, and Jekyll Island. Sometimes people have heard more about those individual islands than they have um, the, the area at large. Mm -hmm. um, our fishery here is primarily inshore marsh. Um, we do a lot of off, there is some offshore fishery uh, fishing as well. But just so you get an understanding of where we're located on the East Coast, we're the westernmost point on the East Coast. We're in what's called the Atlantic Bight. So we're, the way we describe it is we're located directly under Cleveland, Ohio, to give you some context. Mm -hmm. And what happens there is we have this huge tide swing, eight to 10 feet, um, which not only, um, you know, with this marshlands provides a great nursery ground and, and a thriving ecosystem, um, but provides some spectacular fishing. Our species here, redfish, uh, triple tail, seasonally tarpon seasonally we're we're catching flounder on fly and conventional sheep's head uh, speckled trout you name it you know your typical inshore species here now when you say flounder on fly are you just bouncing <laughs> like to talk to me about because the only time i've seen flounder on fly is when somebody gigs it with their pole so right, right. talk me through just really quick what that looks like well it's really a lot of these you know they're warming up on on these banks at low tide and um, there's just certain mud banks along our marshlands where you know are prevalent with, with flounder. Mm -hmm. So all you need is a weighted fly there, just some lead eyes. A, a game changer maybe. A, yeah, <laughs> I, was gonna, I was gonna interject a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I've caught flounder just about everywhere I've fished, you know, um, South Carolina, Virginia, North Carolina, Louisiana. Well, not, not Louisiana, but um, I haven't fished Georgia yet, but hopefully tomorrow I'll get my first chance. Yeah, but uh, people don't realize how uh, aggressive um, flounder are. Mm -hmm. I mean, they will come off the bottom to eat something on the surface. I've mm -hmm. seen them. I was, matter of fact, I was fishing with a buddy last year in, in uh, just outside of Georgetown, and um, there was a bunch of trout stacked up on this bank right on this current seam, and we were catching trout about every cast, and the next thing you know, I just I get hammered by this really nice flounder that just came off the bottom and, and actually came out of the water like a porpoise and smoked it. It was super cool to watch. So yeah. flounder, they're one of the cool fish that, you know, I caught my first one when I was about nine years old and mm -hmm. um, I was super fascinated by them. And not only do they eat well, but they, they fight pretty good too. And they're, they're, they're not that bad on fly. I mean, I've mm -hmm. caught them on flats, sight fishing them mm -hmm. um, in Virginia, and which is super cool too. And mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be on the bottom because their eyes are up on the, you know, they're flat, obviously, and their eyes are always looking up. Okay. And they're usually ambush-style predators, mm -hmm. like every, every fish is. I mean, Larry, would, Larry Dahlberg would get on me for saying that because every fish is an ambush predator. Mm -hmm. They're going to do it. But um, flounder are really good about hiding, and then something comes near them, and just next thing you know, they're, they're, their eat is so fast yeah. that uh, they're gone before the bait fish even knows it. You know, so it's super cool to watch it. Yeah, when I was in high school, my dad, after football games, would take me out to gig flounder at night, and we had the lights set up, and that was an amazing way to see and learn about inshore. In fact, before I even got into sight fishing in the flats, um, I, I was actually floundering first, and it helped me understand a lot about fish behavior because you can see so much, and you guys have a, a really cool a really cool fishery here and uh th and you said this will be your first time fishing here brunswick or georgia period georgia period yeah um, it's been on my radar for a very long time but just 
for whatever reason, you've, you've kind of Georgia's on the, on the way to Florida, right? Yeah. So it's kind of like, you, and, and that's, that's They're the kind of They're insecure about that. Don't, t- don't say that. Well, <laughs> they, they, they were actually finishing my sentences earlier about it. I know I'm not the only one, but I've thought about Georgia my whole life, and, I'm, mm-hmm. and I've looked at it on maps. I'm like, this fisher, the fishery here looks like it's got to be super good, mm-hmm. and, and it's kind of like the sleeper state. Mm-hmm. I mean, most people, like Jerry was saying earlier, don't realize that Georgia has a coastline. Mm-hmm. So it's... Well, uh, there actually was a bumper sticker that, you know, you can go to our local um, barbecue joint here called Southern Soul Barbecue, go in the bathroom. I think you'll still see some of those stickers. Georgia has a coast question mark. Yeah. And we mark down where the coast is because most people do. They're passing through on family vacations down to mm-hmm. Florida. Um, if you look at it from I-95, there's just, there is not a lot along the corridor, mm-hmm. the 100 miles of Georgia coast there. Um, you wouldn't know it until recently. We've had a great, tremendous um, impact from our local Convention and Visitors Bureau, um, goldenisles.com. They put a lot of marketing dollars into it, and now you'll see those billboards along I-95, which we're starting to see folks peeling off of I-95. I never knew Georgia had a coast, and they're stopping in on the fly outfitters, and um, this is their first you know, introduction, even though they've been driving that route for two decades <laughs> well we could raise some money in florida for people to go to georgia instead like you could <laughs> you could have a billboard in florida it just says georgia coast instead that could be our billboard we have for you guys it just says go back no i'm just kidding <laughs> well but, I, I, I could tell you i mean now that i'm here i'm gonna be back a lot I mean, yeah you know the, the people here are super friendly um jared hooked us up with this amazing hotel right here downtown brunswick yeah. um what's it called the crest the crest hotel yeah crest that place brunswick phenomenal anybody ever gets here they got to go stay there yeah super nice well and that's that to me that's this event i even told jared this earlier this week when he was sending out the itinerary i was like dude this is the most on top i've ever been a part of as far as like an event like this not that i've been to tons but and you know you got it so loaded up it's like there's a boat show there's a barbecue there's fly fishing film tour there's uh the fly tie night and kind of hang out at the bar and then there's fishing tomorrow i mean but when you look around too all this is happening in a really cool city that there's coffee shops there's breweries there's i had a lager what was the brewery called that i had the Uh, silver bluff brewery yeah i had a a lager from there that was really good and there's definitely it's 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 got a, a lot of charm here um, so tell us, Jared, for you, what, what really led you to want to do an event like this? Cause I love to see fly shops trying to do everything they can to engage the community and just meeting people out here. There's a boat show. I don't know if we mentioned that, but you know, just uh, the opportunity for people to come together. I love to see that. How did you get to the place of wanting to d- today to come to fruition? Well, I think the past five years, ever since Adam and I started on the fly outfitters, we've been all about building community and community and tribe have been our main focus. Uh, it was always secondary where, you know, we, we knew the money would follow eventually, but we knew we had a tremendous community here. Uh, as Blaine's seeing firsthand, an incredible fishery that's really unnoticed by a lot of folks. Not a lot of people are coming this way yet. Um, the secret's starting to get out. Even in our area from St. Simons Island to Jekyll Island, I would say that is second to Savannah as far as tourism for mm-hmm. coastal Georgia. But there's this entire coastline between the Golden Isles and Savannah that's untouched. Most people don't even know about. And so we'll venture out north from here into those areas as well. Um, And I know Savannah will venture south. Like Shellman Bluff area is terrific. Um, And you could always find these inshore marshes and creeks, endless creeks. You couldn't even navigate all of them in a lifetime. 
Mm-hmm. And there's a lifetime of fishing here on the Georgia coast. And we just want more people to know about it. For us, for fly fishing, we have a lot of people using conventional tackle here. Um, we have offshore conting- contingency, as I mentioned earlier. Um, but I just feel, and Adam does as well, fly fishing requires the extra nurturing for people to understand mm-hmm. the intricacies of it, how to cast, how to tie flies. Um, and we've been building that community for five years, and I know they're hungry for events like this. When you combine that with our focus on Georgia Saltwater Anglers Association and try and get to get people to understand how, how to keep this fishery healthy, how to have it sustainable for future generations, for our kids and our grandkids to enjoy, it really, it's a perfect marriage for these types of events. Not only are you educating, you're bringing like-minded people together around an outdoor activity that we all love, you just inter- naturally intertwine to mm-hmm. conserve the places you love, protect the fishery. We want to pass this on to our children. We want to teach them and we want them to teach their grandchildren. Yeah. And I mean, that's that neat. And I know Blaine, you, you have your kid with you and there are some kids running around, which to me just makes the event so much more fun and family friendly. And it's, it's really well done, Jared. You've done a great job. You guys Thank have, you. I appreciate have really gone all out with this. Um, tell, tell me a little bit more because I don't think a lot of people are familiar with ASGA and just kind of what that organization is elevator pitch, um, on what you guys are hoping to accomplish in this season right now. Mm-hmm. And then we'll tie Blaine in a little bit from kind of a, an industry standpoint, but just kind of explain the ASGA, what it is and what you guys well, are trying to do. Well, for our organization locally is uh, GSAA. Oh, I so just many acronyms, right? I despise acronyms. I, yeah. I can't, you know, my entire team makes fun of me because I screw them up all the time. And then LOL. Um, but <laughs> GSAA um, it was started about a year and a half ago and by a, a group of passionate recreational anglers and captains mm. that were just concerned about what they're seeing in their fishery. Um, our limits here, we know because we keep a pulse on Florida and our neighbors to the north as well, um, we're seeing those regulations actively change. We're seeing them decrease limits. We're seeing them put vessel limits. And we're saying to ourselves, why isn't our state doing that? Why don't we have that here locally? Mm. And combine that with what the captains are seeing on the water over a lot of our captains over 200 days a year, some of them 280, 85 days a year. Um, that's their, that's where they live and mm-hmm. breathe when they will see the change before anyone else. And mm-hmm. when we start hearing them come into our shop saying the redfish are smaller, they're not as abundant, we're not finding them anymore. We have captains say, we're not even doing um, flats trips anymore. We're stopping flats trips. Um, and those are drastic changes for people. This is their livelihood Mm -hmm. and we need to make change and we need to make change now. So that's where that came about. Um, we were kind of figuring it out as we went along and we passion was driving and fueling Georgia saltwater anglers association. And we started going out on podcasts and Mm -hmm. kind of getting more and more awareness. And that's where ASGA, they heard us on a podcast. Tony um, from ASGA called me up and connected me and says, listen, Peter Jenkins and I just heard Chad on the podcast. You guys, we love what you're doing. We want to help you. And then we had a mentor to help us through advocacy, help us through um, how to talk to the legislators and so on. It was a learning for us and ASGA was a big part of that. Yeah, in my history with ASGA is I, I went to work with them last summer. Mm-hmm. Um, and a big part of it is I've, kn- I've known Tony for 20 years now. And, um, you know, he, we were introduced basically from 
Lefty Cray. And uh, Lefty always taught everybody, you know, you got to move the sport forward, say what you can save. You know, if, if, if something's not loved, then you, nobody's going to care about it. So mm-hmm. for us as anglers, it's, it's up to us, especially guides. And that's why it's called ASGA, Saltwater mm-hmm. Guides Association. So um, my fisheries at home have been destroyed due to flooding for smallmouth bass, disease, whatnot. And I reached out to Tony and I was like, look, man, I've got a small kid. I want to make sure that he's going to be able to see the things I've seen and it's dying fast. And I get to travel all over the, the country and I see these things happening everywhere I go. And mm-hmm. it, it's, it's time for me to try to make a change on the platform that I've created over 30 some years of being in the fly industry. So for me, it was very important to kind of ch- take what I've learned over the years and what I've lost and try to stop it before it gets taken away forever. Mm-hmm. So that's where I'm at. And for you, I know like when we sat down and did an interview together, you talked about how Lefty and some of those other individuals were kind of a mentor to you and they passed along techniques, they passed along patterns or things, but they also passed along a mindset, a perspective on how we take care of natural places for you now that you're in a position where a lot of people are seeing you that way, seeing you as the mentor, just like Jared mentioned and you know, you're meeting people here at this event. What does it look like for you in this season of life to try to turn around and return the favor to the next generation? Uh, just to, to do the best I can, really. I mean, um, there'll, there'll never be another lefty cray. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, part of the, the fly industry, particularly, is a small industry. And everybody knows everybody. Mm-hmm. And doing these little events that we're doing today just brings the community closer together. And that's that's the kind of thing that I can do by coming and teaching tying or teaching casting or just talking about the sport and sharing the stuff that people like Lefty uh, shared with me. I mean, he's he's touched so many different people in the industry, and that's what I'm trying to do. And it's it's not by saying, look how great I am. It's about being humble, and mm-hmm. it's about being a friend to everybody that you meet. And that's what spreads the sport, and that's what always is going to spread the sport. And that's the same thing in conservation. I mean... People think it's commercial fisheries that are destroying everything all the time, and sometimes it is, but a lot of times it's recreational mindsets. And I've seen that in Louisiana. It's hard to get people that's been doing a certain thing Mm. for years and years, and all of a sudden people are trying to tell them that they can't do it anymore. It's Mm. like trying to get, like in Louisiana, they, they can kill 25 trout per angler every day. So what do they do now? They catch 12 inch trout because there isn't any adult trout anymore. And so what happens then is like, well, we're catching these small trout. So what else are we going to do to have fun? So they, they, they target sheep's head, they target the redfish, and that's what people go to Louisiana for. Hmm. And it's the same thing here in Georgia, same thing in Virginia where I live. It's just, it's a part of a problem. And it's all about education. I mean, we're not trying to keep people from taking a fish home to harvest, to eat or whatnot, because I like to do that as well. But it's, it's about being responsible and just taking what you can need or what you you know, and it's teaching our kids too. It's mm-hmm. like what they see is what they're going to do. And I think we're at a turning point now where traditional, like my grandfather taught me all kinds of stuff, but he was more of just a, an outdoorsman. He wasn't about taking as many fish as possible or whatever. It was just about being outside and teaching me turkey hunting and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I was 
brought up in a different way, but um, a lot of times it's just as much as I can get, that's what you need to get. It's like take, 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 and not give back. And that's kind of where we are in our world now. And that's why a lot of our fisheries are dying because um, it's been taken so many years and not much given back. And that's where ASGA is trying to help out and, and trying to be the watchdog to some of the policies that are being, or laws that are being written through these organizations that are, are the ones that are mandating what's gonna happen to our fisheries. So we're basically there to kind of share with the angling community what we're seeing on the backstage because most people don't want to set on a 10 meet a 10 hour meeting and and, and reading these documents that takes a lawyer to understand yeah. you know what i mean and and, and i've seen it <clears throat> and i'm not the smartest person in the world but you can set in on one of these meetings and you can see right away that it's 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 very biased mm -hmm. and and that's why our fisheries are are dying because it's i don't think the best interest is in our fisheries. It, it's it's about who's going to get what, and it may be a small community of, of. Um, it doesn't matter who it is. I'm not going to pick on commercial anglers. I'm not going to, I'm not going to pick on any individual. It's just, it's just the mindset needs to change. That short-term answers are never going to win out. It's mm -hmm. you got to look at the big picture and the long term. It's going to take a while, but. You know, if you just, it's like this perfect thing with the striped bass and the recovery that we're trying to, to make happen is like, they won't give now to have the recovery come back faster, mm -hmm. right? So they're, they're like, nah, we're, we're gonna be able to keep this many fish. We're not gonna close this. We're not gonna do this because somebody's gonna get upset about it. And the reality is, is if they closed it for five years or just cut it back to half or just a quarter, um, the fish will recover and it's been proven. It's happened over and over. The striped bass almost was destroyed 20 some years ago. And I've seen it when it was destroyed and I've seen it when it came back and now I'm seeing it on the decline again. So I've been fortunate to see that unfortunately. And, um, it's the same thing with redfish. I mean, the redfish are in Louisiana. They were almost taken out with the whole black and redfish thing back in the day. And, um, then all of a sudden nature has a way of healing itself, mm -hmm. you know, and we just have to get out of the way and let it allow it to do that. And the only way we can do that is by limiting how many fish we can keep and it, for mm -hmm. a short period of time or whatever, but you gotta be smart about it because if, if you build something back and then turn around and open it back up again, you're opening up the floodgates and then it's going to end up back where it was. So I think they just need to, stop looking short-term and start looking long-term and, and just be responsible about what we have because we only get one shot at this really. Mm -hmm. And if mm -hmm. once it's gone, it's gone. Yeah. And one of the challenge I've, I've seen in my area because there's a lot of this, there's kind of a clash of two worlds in my area. So I live in rural Florida up in the panhandle. And so there's plenty of fly fishing and then there's plenty of live bait and there's plenty of offshore, near shore, all of that. And what ends up happening with the infighting is it seems like, you know, the older generations or, you know, um, people who are familiar, you said, you know, it's tough when people are used to a certain way, a certain way of doing things. And then this infighting happens because to a lot of people, I think it feels like, well, there's this one little group of people who want to have more fish than what I guess they would say with more fish than what would be needed. Cause a lot of people say, why not have as many as possible? Mm -hmm. But they're they're you know and it kind of becomes like off-putting to people because 
they're being told something they can't do. And they're having, you know, and no ha- one likes change. They're having a bunch of, you know, guys point fingers at them and, you know, they got all their fancy gear and stuff. Right. And they're you guys need to release more fish and they don't want to, they don't want to listen. And back to even what we're talking about with these events, one of the things that I've found that's helpful is, you know, you, you're not going to, you're not going to win somebody's heart by screaming at them. Or like John Mayer has a lyric that's like, has anybody ever changed their mind from a pain on a sign? And it's like, how do you actually help people, you know, care about places, like be willing to engage in conversation. And it goes back to something you said earlier, which is like, we have to show them, we have to connect them. We have to actually, people won't, what did, what, what did Lefty say? People won't care for what they don't love or yeah i mean you can't protect something that you don't love and how can you love it if you don't know about it so if people don't know about it we need to show them and then if people also love it but think differently then we have to figure out how to engage in conversation without being off-putting to each other and i think that's a little bit of the struggle this the georgia fishery has been the number one outside of things in my own state that i've had people reach out to me sending me emails sending me messages on social media saying you need to see this you need to look at this and I can tell that it's bubbling here mm-hmm. and people are, are really wanting to engage some of this. Can you just give a, Jerry, can you give a quick overview from a more specific standpoint, what you guys are lobbying? You guys kind of ran something to the finish line and had mm-hmm. some struggles. Can you give a little bit of context to that and of just course. so people can understand that? Yeah. I mean, we've, we've come a long way in a year and a half. Um, this past year we've worked hand in hand with the DNR uh, coastal resource division and they've, They've been responsive. They really have in, in, in creating these platforms to have more conversations. And so they would do a meeting in Brunswick and they would do a meeting in Savannah. They had two redfish panel meetings or two redfish town halls, we called them, to start out. And they really just wanted to collect more information. They were hearing from GSAA. They were hearing from our group and saying that there is a concern and we need some change. But they still wanted to do more due diligence. So I think these redfish town halls halls accomplished that. Um, Then they put out a series of surveys from the DNR, Department of Natural Resources. And in in those surveys, again, they're collecting more and more information. And it was, I think it was more than 70% of the respondents said that they wanted a decrease in regulations. So it couldn't have been more clear um, that the way to go is to be a little more restrictive on your regulations. Lower our limits, which our redfish limits right now are five fish per person per day with no vessel cap. So you can have a boat with six anglers on it and every one of them can keep five redfish. Our low end of the slot is 14 inches. And so that was another issue for us. These are still juveniles. We want these fish to grow and to be able to, to reproduce. Um, they followed that up with I believe they called panel discussions. I'm not sure if I'm saying that correctly, but it was two more meetings, one in Brunswick, one in Savannah again. These were more official, where they presented their findings from the surveys to the audience. They took public feedback again and again, resoundingly, we want change. Um, So we actually, at the end of last year, had the DNR Coastal Resource Division make a proposal for regulation changes. And it was a small victory for us um, they were admitting that they also, through those meetings, saw that there was a need for change, and they were supportive of it. They didn't make it as drastic of a change as we wanted, um, but they kind of met in the middle. Mm-hmm. What happened was there was this political backlash. There were a few legislators uh, in particular that did not want the change. They said their their constituents didn't want it, so they didn't want it. And 
unfortunately, as of in the past month, it, it's been shelved. Um, so where they were going to propose the regulation changes to the, to, uh, the DNR board, the inter intermediate step was, okay, we're not going to propose it to the DNR board right away because there are a few legislators that are completely opposed to this. It, it became a political decision at that point. And so they said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to hold a meeting and present it to the legislators as a whole. And we're going to present all these findings and due diligence we did. Redfish town halls, the panel discussions, the survey. If everyone has the same information, then we'll present it to the board. Um, turned out they canceled that meeting as well. And so all of that work, and we hear this time and time again, and Blaine can back me up on other fisheries as well, this shouldn't be a political decision. It's, it becomes a political decision. And this one legislator in particular, um, you know, is so opposed to it that there's been whispers of him wanting to um, take their power away from them to make these regulation changes. And in that case, they would have to present it to the legislators once a year, I think, is the, the requirement. Um, so we'd have to wait a full year to propose any regulation mm -hmm. changes. And it, it takes that power away from the Coastal Resource Division. We don't want that. We want them to have the power. Um, but we just want them to actively be able to use it and propose these regulation changes uh, regardless of political pressure. Mm -hmm. Politics has no place in these decisions for our fishery. Um, Unfortunately, it happens a lot. And, and, and that's part of what ASGA does is, um, is we, we provide the science for them. It's undisputable. I mean, when you have the science that backs up what you're trying, what you're preaching, it's kind of hard if you back them against the wall, they have no choice, and and that's that's ASGA's uh, stance on this. Is look, we're gonna we're gonna do everything we can to make it harder for them to to uh, say no, you know. So if we if we can like we're like doing the false albacore, we're trying to be proactive with that. I mean, people say, well, they're not in any danger. It's like no, we don't know that they are at all, and maybe they are, maybe they're not. I don't think they are. I haven't heard that they are. But, there, but if, if you could kind of do the things ahead of time before there is a problem, like there's no cap on, you can catch as many albies as you want. A, com a commercial vessel could go out and corral. And, if, and this, is, this is a very interesting thing about it too. So last year, at the same time during a week period, we set up um, with scientists, we set up these tagging programs for albies. And uh, in three different locations um, over a three-day period, I think is what it was. So they were doing spaghetti tags and whatnot. And yeah, so all the tagging that we did with the Albies, um, what we found, which is very interesting, um, they also did DNA samples. Um, so we're kind of taking these steps forward to show what's going on. So there's been no research on Albies. Um, you could you could take a commercial vessel. And if they found where these fish spawn, and this is the interesting thing about the DNA sample. So we took clippings, and these are all different sites on the East Coast where they, and they weren't all together. So what happens is when these fish will go by a buoy, it'll ping. And, and, and we found out that these fish will travel a long ways and they, they would get pings. I can't remember what the data was on it, but the one thing that struck me that was super important was all these different sighting samples places were far apart you know, up and down the coast. And they found that the DNA was all the same in these fish, which means they all spawn in the same place. They all come from the same stock. So it wouldn't take much 
if they found where they spawned, and, and, and look at it this way, and I'm not picking on commercial, but it's say the commercial vessels that say like uh, the pogey boats, um, Omega or whatever, right? So say they run out of the, the protein that they're getting from the shad because the shad's gone, the, you know, the menhaden. So where's the next protein gonna come from? You know, there's no, there's zero, zero regulations on false albacore that I'm aware of. So you could catch as many as you want. So they could go out there and if they found the spawning grounds for them, you could wipe out that entire species. Um, so this kind of this kind of studies that we're doing can prove that these things, they're there for a reason. They were, uh, albies are used for bait. Um, there became a problem in Florida where they were, they're going out and catching a bunch of albies every day and using them for bait or using them for whatever and they're selling them um, and it's fine to sell them for bait for offshore and whatever but it was starting to get out of hand because from what I've heard and so there was captains down in Florida that were showing concerns about this seeing that you know this is not good you know because you're just up and down the East Coast um, albies are very important to a lot of different guides for especially fly. Fly, we, we tend to like that false albacore. The conventional side, they, they look at them as like a nuisance because they'll mess up their spreads and whatnot offshore, which I understand that, but th they serve a purpose, right? Mm -hmm. So they're a major food source for those giant pelagic fish, right? Uh, sailfish, marlin, uh, bluefin tuna, what, whatnot. So they need to be protected because not only are they great for us anglers that like to catch them, but they're also a major food source for some of our biggest predators on the planet. So why not be proactive? People are like, why would you even want to care about protecting something like that? Mm. But it's, it's that whole pyramid thing. It's like, why would you care about protecting shrimp? Why would you care about protecting glass minnows or any of that stuff? It's mm -hmm. because it's a pyramid effect. I mean, <clears throat> they are there for a reason. Uh, the predators feed on them. We love to catch these fish. And if, if we don't have the food source for these fish are going to move on or they're going to die. Mm -hmm. So we have to care about everything that we do. And that's a big part of it. So people just really don't understand the whole scheme of, of life. All you got to do is get back to school. I mean, it, it, that whole, like I keep talking about the pyramid thing and it, um, it's like they start off as eggs. They start eating on um, microscopic food sources. And then these, these prey, or predators, they grow up and they start eating each other, right? Mm -hmm. So it, it just kind of keeps growing and all, every single part of the lifestyle or life cycle of all these different species that we're either fishing for mm -hmm. or using as bait is a very important part of the whole process. So for us at ASGA, we look at all of it and we, we want to try to make sure that we're protecting everything that we can because it's all interconnected. And just like the redfish here and the redfish at home for me in Virginia, yeah, we have some of the biggest redfish in the world, but there's there's not much research on these fish once they get above the slot limit. Like so, that's part of ASGA is what we're trying to do now is try to to give that science and information because we don't really know what they do. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a big gap in Virginia, like these 20, 27, 28 inch fish. They have no idea what they do once they get to that point, and then all of a sudden we get these forty pound to eighty pound redfish in giant schools in the bay but they don't know where the fish in between go they yeah. have no idea it's like those are the fish in louisiana that everybody goes to louisiana for mm -hmm. I, and i want to catch them in virginia where are they i have no idea so we're going to start studying them and figuring out where they go we do know where they spawn so we can do the dna samples 
and, and try to enter, try to connect the, the dots, but there's there's zero information once they reach a certain size, and that's important because that's a breeding stock, mm -hmm. you know. And same here. I mean, mm -hmm. like you're saying, the four, 14 inches, and I mean they're super small. They're not. They're you know it takes. I don't forget what the redfish is when they're mature enough to start spawning. Do you remember what that is? I can't. I can't uh, remember. But no, off the top of my head. But uh, but you know these redfish grow. I mean they live forever. If you mm -hmm. leave them alone, I mean, they can, I mean, basically once they reach a certain size, it's basically whatever their age is, is like a, you get a fish that's like in that 40 inch range. I mean, plus, I mean, these fish are like 30, 40, 50 years old. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're, they're, mm -hmm. they grow forever. They live forever. They slow down as they get bigger, but I mean, top end in Virginia, we can get them up in the upper 70 pound range, you know, and that's important. I mean, North Carolina gets them as well, but, uh, I just find it fascinating that they're, that these fish have been around so long that there's been zero information. Mm -hmm. You know, Tony was a big part of putting some stuff together to protect the um, mid-Atlantic redfish, the East Coast redfish, where they cannot be targeted once they get above slot, which is super important, but we don't know how many there are. We don't know where they, what, what they're doing. We do know where they spawn, but we don't know what's going on in that transition when they get to be giants, which is, mm -hmm. if you look at it based on how long they live, there's a big gap right there. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, that's kind of scary that we don't know anything. And then mm -hmm. the next thing you know is we have all these big giants and then all of a sudden they're gone. Mm -hmm. You know, where, where, was, where, where did this gap go from 27 inches up to the 40 inch plus range? That's, that's the thing that kind of scares me. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure you're seeing it here, right? We're absolutely seeing it here. Absolutely. And I think, you know, we, we respect the science as well. And we know our local DNR and Coastal Resource Division does a number of studies around redfish. And um, we've seen the data, but we, we are also understanding that that's not all the data that we can collect. There's, there's, there's gaps, just like Blaine was saying. We don't know what the fish are doing at a certain age. And we want to have the complete picture. So we want to support our scientists to get more data. Um, but we also need to understand that social science is a data. What our captains mm -hmm. are seeing on the water is science. I repeat, what our captains are seeing on the water is science. And I think a lot of organizations um, discount that. They don't see it as science. Speak. Um, I just think we need to find better ways to record it. And we need to have, we need to have clearer communication between our captains who are on the water over 200 days a year and our scientists and our organizations like the DNR and the Coastal Resource Division. That is a component of it. You can't just operate in a vacuum. And when they see things, they're the canary in the mine. A lot of people have said that over and over again. I think that's the perfect analogy. Yeah, I say it all the time. I mean, we are, anglers were the watchdogs mm -hmm. of, for, for our fisheries, but the guides are the canary in the coal mines. Because mm -hmm. um, once you start seeing the guides like myself, used to guide for smallmouth bass, all the time for 20, 28 plus years. But our smallmouth fisheries started dying and I have all these clients that's fished with me forever. And we went from catching 50 on a slow day and hundred plus fish on a normal day to catching, working your tail off to catch 10 to 20 fish exactly. between two anglers. There's, there's, a, there's something wrong. Mm -hmm. So now I've got clients that have been guiding for 10, 15, 20 years that don't want to go anymore. Cause they remember the good old days. It's like, this isn't smallmouth fishing. And I'm like, I agree. Mm -hmm. And that, that's why I'm with ASGA now, even though they, they are really focused on saltwater. But it, you know, if I can help with that, 
and then maybe getting some focus and by getting in with them i'm meeting people that may that i'm starting to bring back to my home it's like we're having problems here mm -hmm. we need to get this fixed and you could call it whatever you could call it you know see you know global warming you call it whatever you want i don't care i'm not getting into that whole argument <laughs> but things are changing whether it's by humans or whether it's by the weather's changed or whatever it may be you know our our small mouth at home it has nothing to do with the salt water but i think it has i think it's all interconnected because we get these giant storms now that puts a lot of fresh water in our mountains and we get these giant runoffs that destroy our spawns so our fish aren't able to kind of they they just they've always spawned at a certain temperature uh water temperature it could be ambient light whatever it may be that makes them do what they do and um they do it and then they they put their eggs out there they try to protect them or whatnot and then you get these catastrophic floods every year and that's what they're saying is our our smallmouth are getting their the, the fry and the eggs are getting washed away from the floods during spawning okay so the fish are always going to do that until they can't what's going to happen is that they're going to go extinct and i mean it's gotten to be so bad where i am i just don't even do it that much anymore mm -hmm. i'm not saying we can't catch bass but it's just like not what i'm used to mm -hmm. so for me i just don't want to do that i mean i backed myself in the corner years ago said i was going to be a musky guide with a fly rod which is the stupidest <laughs> thing to ever do right yeah so i get my butt kicked for four months out of the year and then i could go into smallmouth and start getting the numbers and then next thing you know smallmouth fishes have become musky fishing you know it's like hard and it mm. shouldn't be that way so what i think a lot of times is what happens is we look at each other as as anglers and people like south carolina georgia louisiana i mean i talked to these guides too and it's like do you think it's all commercial recreational overfishing it's like no i think there's environmental changes too right but there you can't necessarily always say that this is going to change and, and be this way it just might be a short period of time within the, the history of the world where we're just going through this kind of stage which is fine but but if we have a a, a very low stock of fish mm -hmm. then you're having environmental issues and then it goes back to what it used to be but you don't have the fish that could handle it you know so you're you're, you're getting a very steep learning curve and there's not much room for error and that's mm -hmm. kind of where we as at ASGA and watchdogs are here to kind of help and, and say, look, man, we, we got to look at all this and every angle that we can. Yeah. I think that's really helpful. And Jared, I know we got to head over here to the fly fishing film tour and you know, there's, there's so much information that we don't have. There's so much information also in our everyday lives that we're being inundated with. It's hard. We're, com we're not just competing to get information. We're competing to give information to everyday people who are being bombarded all day long. I mean, and honestly, I, for me, when I get all the, let me send you five articles about what's happening here in Georgia. I'm going, you know, <laughs> but when we do these events and we come together and we have real conversations, we, we share a drink together. We're, we're chatting around boats. We're, we're finding ways to take the information we do have and give them to people. You know, as we wrap up my, my last question, cause obviously we could sit, sit here all night and, and chat and, you know, it'd be a lot of fun, but um, we do have to head on to the next event, but, uh, my, my question for you guys is what is the next step for somebody? They're listening. They're saying, okay, I, I want, I love fishing. I want to do my part. What, what's the next step that somebody does? I, th I think, you know, really just get involved. I know that every fishery has local organizations. I can say that with confidence, get involved, reach out to them and connect. That's, that's, what's going to make change. 
um, to just to show that, you know, Blaine mentioned earlier, he said the fly fishing industry is once you're in it for just a little while, you'll realize it's a tight knit group. Everyone mm -hmm. knows everybody and they're the most giving people I've ever met in my life. Um, and through that, give you a quick example. When we were having our Redfish Town Halls, we were, we were, we were coming across some barriers and um, just through social media, Benny Blanco reached out to us. Mm -hmm. And this man is just driven um, to protect fisheries mm -hmm. and conservation. It's, it's one of his top priorities. And we were blown away. But he drove, he canceled a charter and he drove all the way up to our Redfish Town Hall to talk to our legislators. Mm -hmm. um, that's the type of infectious um, response we want to start to see within our mm -hmm. communities. And, and just like you said, Hunter, it's really events like this where, which bring people together. It, it almost disarms them, right? It just puts everyone at ease. We all are seeing it, that we have this common love and passion and interests. And no matter what our, our personal thoughts are on limits, um, we're, we're having a good time and we're having conversations. And I think that's the biggest advice I can give to anyone in your fisheries. Have conversations. Show up. Show up at the events connect with your local organizations and never stop learning. Once you have that hunger to never stop learning, we're going to be that much more further into protecting our fisheries. Um, and what the very wise Lefty Cray taught us is, and that's what we do every day. And that's another main reason for our events, you know, through on the fly outfitters, when Blaine guides, um, you know, we're all teaching constantly and we're telling people, um, we're introducing them to the wild, to the outdoors, because once they see it and experience it, they love it. And once they love it, they want to protect it. It's a really simple equation that these events accomplish, our guides accomplish every day when they have mm. that mindset. And if each of us can just constantly connect, network, and communicate, I know that we can get this done. Mm. Well said. And just to take that quote a little further, you know, they can't care for what they don't love. They can't love what you don't show them and you won't show them anything if you're so a wise. Jerk. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. nobody wanna be around you. So I think too, like be a friendly person who, you know, wants to help people understand in and experience. So if you see somebody out in a kayak, don't don't be a jerk to them. Mm -hmm. You know? Like that's somebody that might be able to that that's somebody who is showing the first step or showing a step of caring for the water. And you know, that's to me I think that if we can just have more fun together and be more caring, we can, the scientists and the guides and everybody's working together to pull all these puzzle pieces together, but the puzzle won't mean anything if there's no one to look at it. You know, exactly. we need people to see it. So that's my encouragement, man. I'm so grateful for you guys. I'm excited to come back in the fall and do a little bit of falconry and red fishing and we're excited, excited for Blaine back. to get to hit the marsh tomorrow. And yeah. Um, yeah, I got know. to see Adam working the birds. That's pretty sweet. I yeah. got to hold a, I got to hold a couple of them. So. Adam is a great educator too. He was like, Very. as he was holding the the bird, I was like, man, this guy can educate, which is, well, I'm excited to come back and see that. And thank you for the time. Looking forward to the rest of the event. And we'll put some links for people to take next steps in the bio. Thank you. I appreciate you guys coming down. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to the Captain's Collective Podcast. Help us out by sharing this podcast with your friends online and leaving us a review on iTunes or Spotify. Thanks for listening. This is the Captain's Collective.